0: Some possibilities are dangerous. I used to think there was no such thing as a bad idea. If you get enough people to believe in it, you can do it. That's what I'm noticing that's the most costly in some of the people that haven't done the Influence Ecology work versus the people that are starting to do it, is they get to sit down and go, maybe that's not a great way to go.
1: Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives this is the influence ecology podcast now here is your host john patterson
2: good morning good afternoon good evening wherever you are in the world i'm your host john patterson the co-founder and ceo of influence ecology the leading business education in transactional competence Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction, not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive Swimming in possibilities and excitement might be more detrimental than we think. As a biological exchange animal, our moods and transactions are inextricably linked. We read or mimic the moods of others faster than we recognize their words. We've all learned the hard way that a text or email can't include the wordless cues like mood body language, appearance, inflection, and more. Might we sometimes produce moods that are inappropriate for transacting? John Severson of Severson Compass and Associates, a Los Angeles-based travel and venue company, offers a case study in the dangers of being oriented around too many possibilities. In today's Guru Talk, you'll hear co-founder Kirkland Tibbles discuss how appropriate moods are not always positive moods, and that a little too much excitement might be dangerous. Here's the interview. Welcome to the Influence Ecology podcast, Mr. John Severson. Take a second and introduce
0: yourself if you would. My name is John Severson. I have a company called Severson Compass and Associates, and I've been studying with influence ecology for about three and a half years now. We plan meetings and events. We've been in business for 29 years. We've done probably close to 300 conference-type events in the last 29 years. It's been a wild ride. And you live where? I live in Altadena, California. My office is in Pasadena, just down the street. I speak to you quite often you do work with influence ecology
2: also working with us on our events yes i do you've helped us find some really spectacular venues for our events around the world last annual conference january we were at a fantastic venue in cabo i've been now twice can't wait to go back again for all kinds of reasons love it there so thank you for that you often are traveling too. You and I speak every now and then, and I always start off with where are you at this moment? And sometimes it'll be Hawaii, sometimes it'll be somewhere in Europe, sometimes it's someplace perhaps in Australia, New Zealand, or the like, so you do travel
0: quite a bit. I do. Partly, I think I come from a travel background family. My dad has been a pilot all his life, and. My mom is actually in the travel business as well. She has a big travel empire, I'll say. I'm a travel baby, so to speak, of that world. It's fantastic. Life for you
2: before influencer college wasn't bad. It sounds like it was pretty great.
0: Actually, pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I made decent money. I could take care of myself, but I did struggle in many ways.
2: Sometimes people do our programs because there's a pretty substantial breakdown in some place. Maybe they're someone's not making the kind of money they know they'd like to. Maybe they'd like to be a lot more influential in certain circles. Maybe they are rather stressed out because of the kind of work they do or how much work they do. So sometimes people find us because they have a pretty substantial breakdown. It doesn't sound like that you began your study with us and continued your study with us because you're trying to resolve some big problem it sounds like there's some other things that are driving your participation here yes
0: actually how i got into influence ecology was i knew a bunch of other people were doing it so i'm like i'll do it too you know it was kind of like that yeah but then of course there was more i discovered as i studied it was like i got into it and then found out really how valuable it was i should say.
2: And are you one of those people that really loves the exploration? I watch you sometimes. You're you're one of my favorite people to look out into an audience and watch. Many people, you look out and they're going, "Eh," and their face looks all crunched up. But you're almost always nodding. You're almost always a yes. Your body, your face kind of goes, bring it, bring it more, more, more. So you seem to be somebody that loves developing themselves, training themselves, exploration expedition, if you will. Is that one of the things that drives your participation?
0: Yeah, of course, there's a part of me that thinks I know it all, right? But when I get fascinated with a subject, yeah, I'm just like all in. So that drew me in. And also, the part that I love mostly, uh, studying with you guys, it's that it's not like one or two concepts that once you get down, you're like, okay, I'm, I'm good for the day. There is quite a bit of stuff with influence ecology. You really have books to read. You have a lot of subtle distinctions that in one day, you know, you need to master. So I love the challenging aspect of that study. As we've come to know our
2: customer, we're going to be celebrating our 10th anniversary next year. And as we've grown, as we've explored the kind of people who respond to what we do. The majority of people that come here and study with us, they're typically a business professional of some kind. Maybe they work in an enterprise, maybe they work for themselves, maybe they're a small business owner and the like, but they seem to all share a love for bettering themselves, improving themselves, being engaged and involved in their continued development. And it might be very useful for you and I to talk a little bit about that because there are people that are listening who may go, you know, I just love this kind of stuff. I would like to be challenged with new ways to think about things and grab little nuggets of wisdom that perhaps reshape my day or improve things just incrementally enough that adds up to a whole bunch of good.
0: I almost want to compare influence ecology like a master's program. If you really were going to do an MBA or something, it's that kind of rigor, probably more relevant than the stuff you'd you'd learn in an MBA program, I would say, because it's very applicable in the moment you hear it. But my experience is you're kind of building a foundation with the studying that you do instead of one idea you grasp onto and then build your whole enterprise around that idea. It's not like that. You're building your foundation and then you're building how you want to set up your teams and how you want to think about the commitments you want to take and then how simple or complex you want things. think. It's that level of thinking that inspires me to stay in what you guys do, that education. That's really great. And then taking that, I've watched
2: your journey through our programs as a business owner. And tell me if I'm wrong, but I have I think I watched you at first start to deal with that you had a single client and you may realize it wasn't really good for you because then you would be, of course, then beholden to a single client. That's never good for a business because that client can go away or make demands or whatnot. So that's one thing that you began to see. So that's the first thing. Anything you want to say about that
0: Yeah. And, you know, even before Influence Ecology, I knew that, but there was no way to change that. It seemed like I was on this train and I couldn't get off, like bring anyone else on. It was like it was just going that way. And that is very accurate. That's the way it was heading before I did Influence Ecology.
2: And then I think I observed you start to realize that with a single client, then you didn't have as much freedom or say as you might like in certain contracts or situations. And I don't think that you moved away from that client. I think some things happened intermittently, but I think you just began to see that you could perhaps transact
0: with them in some new ways. Is that correct? Absolutely. Yeah. A lot of it was You know, you you set up your own environment, right? You know, I kind of train my clients to be that way and to rely on me that way. And it's no accident that they're they're doing the things that they do. Oh, you mean like training them to relate to you like you're at their beck and call? I'm available 24-7 and I have unlimited resources and stamina and all that good stuff. Yes, you train them in that so
2: that they, of course, call you whenever and okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And then I complain about it.
2: (laughs) Exactly, right? So so you started to see that you could then um, train them in some other things. What did that look like?
0: Again, I want to say accurate thinking. Stepping back and saying, "Hold on a minute, what is my aims?" Cuz I think that gets lost so easily in our everyday transactions, doing things that we forget. You know, we think, "Oh, you know, this is all about making the customer happy or all about making it through the day, making sure that I don't screw up, whatever that is. But you forget really what your aim is. Like, what are you here for? Like, what the, what the heck do I have clients for in the first place? And that was the centering moment of Influence Ecology where I could say, okay, if that's the case, then I can say no. Or, and I can say yes, but I get to see the parts that really work and then the parts that isn't working.
2: And when you begin to accept or decline requests made of you more in accordance with your aims, as you began to do that, did that scare you a little bit? Since it was your single client that they might go, "Well, listen, Bucko, or did you just take little baby steps and found it safe to stick more than a toe into the water?
0: It was actually kind of fun, that whole journey because before you say whatever you say, you already have your idea of what people are going to think. But most of the time, people received it well. They were like, good for you. Or why don't we do it that way? You know, people actually came around and very rarely did people say, we can't work together because you're unreasonable. But it was this fun exploration with them where they got to see, oh, you know what? I I like your idea better.
2: In that situation, the development or the growth that you had was realizing that you can train people by accepting or declining in particular ways, and then you're left with the environment that you produce for yourself. And before you have been left with the environment that you produce to yourself, which is an environment in which anybody could call you anytime and you jump and so forth.
0: Yeah, you think that your value is being available twenty four seven, but that's not really what your value is. That, hey, I'm really good at this, and let's focus on that instead of, Trying to do all that other stuff.
2: Very right, good. So then I watched you begin to consider the name of your company and the way that you were known, which I won't say because I know you have a new identity that you want to produce. So the, the name that you had produced and the, the way that you were known in the past, you began to confront, well, that is not a fit for the identity that I want to produce in the marketplace. And then you began to produce first. I think you begin to ask, well, what is it that I, in fact, offer? What is the solution that I am to what breakdowns and for whom? And that process, in my experience, started to reorient you from where you had been known to something else. Can you say a little bit about that process?
0: I used to do, John, lots and lots of stuff on cruise ships. Like that was the way I started. So, you know, I had a business name that was a lot about that. But as I started to look at what do I really want to do, I realized I don't want to do that stuff. I don't want to do all that work on cruise ships. So that's when I saw, okay, I need to create an identity for what I want to be known for and known as. Which was what? Which was to give people the expertise to navigate having a successful conference that is not only successful but meets their aims. Very good. So you move through all of that and you
2: now no longer have a single client you have many clients many different kinds of clients so what's that been like then navigating away from just simply having a single client to having many clients and what have you learned in that part of your journey
1: If you'd like to know more about Influence Ecology and our approach, you can register for free 30-day guest access. During this time, you can test drive our interactive webinars, online learning system, and private mentorship. Program participation is by application only, and successful participants earn candidacy into our advanced program tiers. Our members are an international assembly of ambitious professionals, business leaders, and executives from a variety of countries, industries, and cultures. To find out more, you can find a link in the show notes for this podcast at influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. That's influenceecology.com forward slash podcast. Or in the U.S. or Canada, you can text the word ambition to 805-262-9008 and we'll send the registration link right to your mobile phone. Again, text the word ambition to 805-262-9008. Also in our show notes, you'll find all the links to websites, books, or special downloads mentioned in this podcast.
0: Well, one thing I realized was I had this naive notion before that to be a really good vendor, let's say, you want to adapt with your client, let's say, that if your client says, we're going to this mountain, well, we better get you up to speed to how to climb that one. And I was all up for that. I'm like, okay, if we're going to that mountain, let me learn how to do that climbing. But what I started to see was that's not my journey. My journey is, look, here's what I'm offering. And if you want to climb that mountain, there's somebody else that can help you there. But I want to help you climb the mountain that we've been climbing, okay? Because I'm good at climbing this one. And I don't want to learn how to climb a whole new mountain over there
2: with all of us, if we are serving customers, our customers sometimes will want to take us on journeys that aren't aligned with the help we offer. So therefore, we start to accept things we probably ought to decline. You know, got all of this labor and maintenance we didn't plan for. And,
0: and I'll tell you, the, the 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 popular notion is just do whatever the customer wants. But that's a lot of work. And actually, you're, you probably aren't going to be that good climbing that mountain because never done it before. And we forget sometimes that it's not just about adapting, but really being known for the thing that you're good at. And sometimes you have to say, look, I'll find somebody that's really good at climbing that mountain for you. But I've never done it. And I don't want to mess up on the way and then uh, blame you because I decided to go along that journey with you.
2: Yeah. And listening to much of your journey now, and different facets of it, I'm I'm much more aware of the condition of life, work, and how that's played a major role in some of what you've attended to. So, what we mean by that here at Influence Ecology is, work is one of 15 conditions of life. A condition of life is an unavoidable area or situation that you have to confront. Work is the doing of your mind and body? What are you doing? So what do you do every day? And oftentimes, when we start to talk about work with people, there's all the stuff I know I don't want to do. There are certainly the things that I enjoy doing, and there's the things that I know I don't want to do. So from the beginning of this conversation, you talked a little bit about the some some of the little aimlessness in the beginning where you'd go off and you'd do this or that and then there was the one client and the work that they demanded of you and starting to decline some things so you could work in the way that you wanted to and moving away from work on cruise ships to now work in a different way. I'm just present to the way in which satisfying that condition of life has impacted your journey and some of the ways that you go about transacting for Meeting your own names in life. Is there anything else that
0: you want to comment
2: on about that?
0: The one thing I, I notice is there's a tendency to do a lot of stuff in any, any endeavor that you do, like any kind of work, like just do a lot of stuff and stay busy, and then eventually you'll reap the rewards. There's something like that <laughs> going on, right? And uh, I'm starting to see, for starting with you guys, that, that you don't have to go that way. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff just because someone else is doing it. You don't have to do it because that might not be right for you. I would go around doing as much as I could because, you know, my mom always said, you know, how you get ahead is you work hard, right? So I did all that stuff. But now I'm looking at it, it that's more a coincidence than an actual fact that, you know, my success came out of doing all that hard work. I mean, I'm not against hard work. I think, I think that's important. But I saw so much of the stuff that I did was unnecessary. And when you really get clear about the, your aims and the approach to do it, a lot of the other stuff kind of falls away. In fact, it distracts people from getting to know you because it's like, well... I know you're good at this, but then you're good at this and you, man, you're so good at everything. What really, what are you about, right? In fact, that's, I think that's been my challenge is I get so good at things, people get confused. They're like, John, we really don't know what you're here to offer us. Understood. It's a great way to say that. That you think, you know, the way to a customer's heart is by doing more, but it's actually the reverse. It's sometimes doing less has them remember you better.
2: Doing something rather specific. Exactly. That's really great. You've now studied with us long enough to begin to observe a lot of other people and the way that they're transacting in the world. What do you observe about people generally and perhaps how they may be naive about the way they're transacting and how some of what they do may be
0: counter to their aims? One of the things that I've observed is some possibilities are dangerous, I used to think there was no such thing as a bad idea. You know, if you get enough people to believe in it, you can do it. That's what I'm noticing that's the most costly in some of the people that haven't done the influence ecology work versus the people that are starting to do it is they get to sit down and go, maybe that's not a great way to go and start building all the other stuff before jumping out and, uh, launching themselves into that direction and I want to say it's it's kind of human nature I think we all love great ideas and and doing them but it's sometimes better to just not do it. It's really great some possibilities are dangerous. I was in Hawaii with my mom and she wanted to remodel this vacation home she had and she had brought in contractors and people to kind of redo this whole house and she says, all right, I want you to go with me to Home Depot and we're going to pick everything out. And here I was going with her down the aisles of Home Depot. She goes, I want that shower. I want that washer dryer. I'm like, I finally like had to stop her and go, I can't do this with you anymore. This is so agitating. I have to just stop this and I, I have to leave. I can't do this thing with you. And she's like, what do you mean? I thought you're here to help me and all. Well, and then finally I said, you throw all this stuff in that room and it'll, but you're probably going to have to rip it all out again later because you don't have a plan. You don't have somebody come in and design it. You know, you're going to probably spend 50,000 doing this and you'll get it done fast, but it'll look like crap. And I think it took her maybe like 10 minutes to think about it. She goes, yeah. But I don't have time to do all that. And I'm like, well, that doesn't mean throw crap in there. you know, So that was a, a perfect yeah. example of, of how I observed. And I, I see that everywhere now.
2: Yeah, I know, I do too. I watch sometimes people addicted to the rush of a new idea. and they're now excited about a new idea, often running. And then have not taken the time to examine whether or not that idea, that new possibility, that that new strategy, that new approach is in any way, shape, or form good for them or is going to produce the kind of mess you pointed out to your mother. I mean, I watch that all the time. Amazing.
0: One of the philosophers we study is uh, John Dewey. And, you know, there's a whole thing where he says that one of the hardest things for a human being to do is to not jump and act right away. Like we have this almost impulse to wanna run out and fix that, right? Like immediately. and uh, i when I read that, I said, "Oh, that's me. Once something bothers me, I'll run out and within minutes, I'm start working on it. But it's not always such a good thing, yeah, absolutely. Probably nine times out of 10, it's probably not the right thing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, it is funny because I don't know that you know, but maybe you do. You've heard little stories, Kirkland and I talking about the early days. And my want, my my personality wants to go for it, to do it, to grab it and go for it and all of that. And his personality is, is not the opposite, but he's had enough training and Enough observation of cautionary tales, enough study in philosophy and everything else to say, well, hold on just a minute. Just hold on. So a lot of the experience in our early days was the want for me to go for it and his wanting to pour a little cold water on it. And so he was always pouring cold water on it in the beginning. Now, there are parts of it that he appreciates that I, you know, went for because we wouldn't have a company without it. But at the same time, where we balanced one another is... I don't jump as much, and he gets to pour a little cold water on that. The beauty in all of that I found is I can get caught up in what occurs like a good fix, a good solution, a good way to mitigate a problem without any examination of whether or not that's a good solution for me, where that's a good solution for my aims, where that's a good solution for what I'm working on, or whether or not that solution is going to produce some set of breakdowns or maintenance or labor i had never considered. And I'm now more in consideration of the whole thing before I act than I was before. And I have stopped myself and thought, yeah, that's going to produce a whole bunch of maintenance. Oh, yep, that's going to produce a whole bunch of labor. Oh, yep, I'm going to have to As an example, we've had many, many people say, you guys should do this in corporations. Really? Okay. Do you know what labor that's going to cost us? Do you know what maintenance that is is that going to get us quicker to our aims? Do you know that for a fact? Is your, I mean, I appreciate your good advice, but do you know my aims well enough to tell me that and so forth? It's a very fascinating thing to think accurately about the kind of work I do and don't want to do.
0: Nike had a saying, just do it. That kind of characterized a lot of the way I launched into things before Influence ecology. And now it's like, stop and think about it before you do it. Maybe it's just a fundamental thing being human being that we just want to run out and fix it and then deal with the mess later, right? Like, oh, yeah, there's a few things we messed up, like my mom would have done. But it's just so much more difficult to do it after you've laid all the appliances and Got to rip out
2: all the tile now. (laughs) Now, where are you in this journey? What are you, you know, talked a little bit about some of the stages of development of your own business endeavors. So where are you now in your business development?
0: I was just having this conversation with Kirkland. I think right now this is satisfying my aim. So it's great. And I'm thinking three years down the road, I want to position myself for a a bigger role, bigger game somewhere down the road. And uh, again, you see how I wanna rush in and do it, but I'm, I'm gonna give myself three years to prepare myself for that. So it's a different way to, to do something where I wanna say, okay, I'm gonna tell everybody I'm gonna do this whole new project. In fact, I'm not even telling you what it is because part of me is like, I got all this studying to do and finding out about things and thinking accurately before I make it public. So it's a great question because, you know, I love what I'm doing, but I think the thing that's next for me is like three years down the road, I got something else cooking that one day I'll be happy to share with you. (laughs) That's really great. That's just a a fantastic sign of maturity rather than announce it. You know, I don't want to say it's like jinxing it. It's not. It's just what you do is you create all this stuff out there and then... And then it affects your identity if it doesn't happen, right? So I'm like, let's not yeah. even go there. Let's do some careful study, s- see what my aims are, what their aims are, and then...
2: We'll see. Yeah,
0: we'll see. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, if there's
2: anything else you'd like to say, any soapbox, anything that you would love
0: to have addressed, want to give you the floor now if there's anything else. I just want to say I've gotten just as much uh, value from is measuring. And this is the thing, a lot of times, uh, this is where a lot of companies will go is like they measure results where, you know, they're going to be measuring like how many sales you're going to promise this week, or what are you going to do for all these results that obviously matter. But I love that in influence ecology, we back it up a step and go, wait a second, we want to measure the action, what it is that you're actually going to do rather than the result. Because- you know, I, I always, that's always gotten me in trouble. You know, i always promising, like, these big promises of, hey, I'm going to have 10 new clients. And then they'll be like, well, didn't happen. I go, yeah, because I was all kind of a declaration kind of a thing. And now I know, okay, this is what I'm going to promise to do, is I'm going to get on the phone, and I'm going to call five new people that I don't know today. That I can promise, but I can't promise 10 new clients today. That's something that I think we go wrong sometimes is it's all about, it's all about the result. And we forget that to get to the results, there's something else you have to think accurately about first. That's so valuable. I don't think anyone else talks about that.
2: This has certainly been a a very valuable conversation today, and I look forward to sharing it with other people. Thank you for being a guest on the Influence Ecology
0: podcast. Well, thank you, John. I had a fun time. In this
2: episode's Guru Talk, we listen in on a Fundamentals of Transaction program webinar where co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and I talk about producing a mood and why excitement isn't always an appropriate mood. Here's the talk. Appropriate moods. So what do they mean by appropriate moods? Well, Kirkland, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by an appropriate mood? Appropriate for what?
3: Let's start with Uh, definition or characterization of a mood. What is a mood? To hold a particular kind of set of feelings or states of mind, you've got to have some sort of narrative in place. So a mood is nothing more than a narrative or a story that you have about an outcome in some condition of life. Could be short term, could be long term. But all a mood is, is some story that you have about some outcome in a condition of life. And I can prove it to you. If you've ever had the experience of being in a mood, and most of the time it's in in a weird mood or a bad mood, and you've forgotten why, where you've had to stop and go, now wait a second, I know I'm supposed to be upset about something, and you can't remember what it is, you have just recognized yourself looking for the story in order to justify the mood. And human beings think in terms of narrative. They think in terms of narrative. We think in terms of story. We have a story about an outcome and that is a mood. So when we talk about moving around in appropriate moods, when we're talking about in moving transactionally, where you can begin to look as moods, as narratives, is what are the moods that are appropriate in a given spot in the transaction cycle? An appropriate mood is a mood that is produced through a narrative at a particular point in the transaction cycle.
2: One of the main reasons we want to distinguish this in the way we do is because most people approach mood in one of a couple of ways I'm familiar with. One is, People have moods, as if there's something uncontrollable about having a mood. I have a mood. I'm in a bad mood. I'm in a good mood. I'm whatever mood. So that's one way that people relate to moods. And then the other way that I find that people tend to relate to moods is something like, well, a positive mood is good and a negative mood is bad. (laughs) Something like that. Or finally, a third approach, which is that some people tend to have the same mood or produce the same mood in all kinds of situations. So the first thing that we like to say is is that there are moods that are appropriate to certain moves, M-O-V-E-S, moves in a transaction. If I am inventing or in the invention of a transaction – then the appropriate mood is imaginative, optimistic. However, if I'm in the producer or fulfillment part of a transaction, then there's a different kind of mood that's appropriate, something more rigorous, something determined. Knowing where I am in a transaction at any given time can tell me the appropriate mood. So as an example, it's uh, not uncommon for us to sit down for a meeting here at Influence Ecology, and Daryl will say something like, well, let's get the optimism and sociability out of the way so we can get to work.
3: (laughs) (laughs) As in this morning, for example, with the exact line being, can we get all that happy horseshit out of the way so we can get to the... No- that That is a typical thing you will hear from someone who's trained in moods, attitudes, and states of mind. They are acknowledging a quick run around the transaction cycle to give everyone a chance because this is where we're headed in this particular meeting. And sometimes some of my favorite moments are when John will stop and go, well, now hang, hang on a second. Uh, This this meeting needs to begin in a particular way because I want to produce a mood here. Now, what John is going to have to do in that situation, and he's very good at it, is he is going to have to to tell a story that we accept. That's what we mean when we say produce moods. Your job in transacting with another human being is first and foremost to, to determine if the mood is appropriate over there for you to engage an invitation to transact. That begins the whole thing right there.
2: So let's address the, the very popular. It's, it's gotten more and more popular. Uh, I, I see so much evidence for it. The, the popular notion that you ought to be in a good mood. You ought to be positive. That negativism is a bad thing. That you ought not be skeptical that you need to be open-minded and positive at all times and in all situations. We say that's not only wrong, incorrect, but just simply isn't responsible for where things are in a transaction. I love the example, Kirkland, of a factory floor. Factory floor, which mood is best for factory floor where work is getting fulfilled? Well, it's rigor, it's determination. It isn't the kind of lithe, gregarious, optimistic approach to things when perhaps safety is concerned or productivity is concerned or systems or processes or structures are concerned. Likewise, I was invited to a meeting in in Tucson some time ago, and, and I knew the meeting was an opportunity to invent nothing more, nothing more. And it was quite difficult to keep the mood in Invent because people wanted to take the mood into a different transaction, into a transaction for somehow getting something done or decided or completed. Knowing where you are in the transaction is important so that you can bring the appropriate mood to the transaction.
3: That's right. And there is a a very clean guide that's available to you through this program called the narratives of the transaction cycle. The narratives are the stories that correspond to the appropriate moods.
2: In our next episode, we interview Corey Shepard of Sound Financial Group. He talks about the benefits of being immersed in a resource of knowledge and talent. The other
3: part about
2: my generation is that independence that's, Pushed it, right? Positive thinking, just go for it and you can do anything, you. And it gets really selfish, it gets really me focused. It was Kirkland Tables who said in the conference, everything you want in life can be found in groups. And then a little bit later, pointed to this whole room of Influence Ecology members and said, welcome to your brain. And what that did for me was all of a sudden my brain expanded to be the whole room. My special thanks to our guest, John Severson. In our show notes, you'll find links to connect with him and all the links to websites, books, or downloads mentioned in this podcast. Some episodes include a transcript and support material. The Influence Ecology podcast is produced by Influence Ecology LLC in Ventura, California. This episode was produced by me, John Patterson, and Jason Kelly. This program is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, mentors, and students around the world. We're grateful for co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and his 30 plus years of specialized study in the philosophy of transactionalism and the fundamentals of transactional competence. This episode includes contributions by Carol Gregory and Tyson Crandall. For this episode, the sound design and editing are by Jason Kelly. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring, entitled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes, or your podcast app and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.